again and welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan and I'll be leading you through this week's virtual Bible study again. Now remember, our fundamental goal in this Bible study is to know God and uh, to read the Bible as the primary source of God's communication, of God's thought to all of those who would seek God. You know, the Bible isn't what we worship, but it is God's clear communication to us, and it's such a great place to start building your relationship with God. But don't forget that you also want to have Christian community, and you want to have the teachings of great scholars, and uh, you want to be a person of prayer, you want to study with others. All of these are ways in which God communicates to us, but fundamentally, the Bible is the place to start. So each week, we'll seek to engage the scripture. We'll talk a little bit about tradition, and we'll also put uh, our present reality into the mix, and uh, so hopefully that'll help us become better uh, in our relationship with God through the Word. Now, I'm a working pastor, so that means that I combine this podcast with the other duties that I perform, and therefore will follow the Revised Common Lectionary as uh, our primary source of reading uh, structure. So when I'm preaching on Sunday morning, I've taken one of those sources, uh, one of those readings from the Revised Common Lectionary, and I've applied it to the sermon message. And here we take a look at all of the readings. So to get the best uh, experience of yours truly, at least, interpreting the word, you could probably benefit from listening to the podcast of the sermon, which is found at CorinthUMC.com. But I'm glad you're with me. Welcome aboard. Now, it's... uh, An early springtime here on Parsons Prairie, that's what I call this little piece of northern Indiana land that we live on. It's flat and windy in the wintertime, and uh, the crops are not in the ground yet, so it's pretty dreary as you look out the window and see brown earth and brown grass, and uh, now it's beginning to change. There are buds on some of the trees, the grass is beginning to green up, the flowers, uh, the annuals are pushing up through the soil, and the robins are back with their pre-dawn chatter every day, and they're trying to make nests in every nook and cranny they can find. Even while on the ground, there are killdeer trying to lure me away from their loved ones with their screeching and their feigned broken wing, and they're running away from me as I'm crossing the Ruthie Road that leads between the parsonage and the church. And all of these are signs of the season of change that we're into right now. There are storm clouds on the horizon today as I look out my window, and I know that after the storms pass through, there will be another day or so of cold air and maybe even some snow showers. But the season is changing, and spring is winning over winter. The days are getting longer, and sure as you please, change is in the wind. Change is coming here at Corinth Church, too. Soon, the Knowing God with Heart and Mind podcast will come from a new location and with a new sponsor. But life will go on, and change will lead to new life and new growth, new friends, and an ever-growing Christian family will be the result. 
A favorite author and podcaster of mine likes to say, the more things change, the more we need to focus on those things that never change. Of course, he's referring to biblical truths. So let's get started. Now, I want to take a moment before we read to talk about versions and translations. Now, when I read to you today, I'll be using my New International Version of the Bible, and uh, I have found it to be truthful and trustworthy enough for all of my purposes. But I want to encourage you to investigate the different kinds of Bibles that are out there. If you go to the local Christian bookstore, or you look on the uh, online Christian books, uh, or on Amazon, or one of those places, you'll find that there are all kinds of variations of Scripture. And this is intimidating, especially to a new scripture studier, because how do you know which one's best? Well, let me give you a couple of pointers that might help you a little bit. For one thing, whenever you see version at the uh, end of the little naming of it, like the King James Version, or the New King James Version, or the English Standard Version, or the New International Version, whenever you hear version, that's referring to a biblical text that has been researched from the earliest possible documents uh, and then brought forward by a set of scholars, usually a large team of scholars and editors. And it's a process that takes years a lot of times to complete. And uh, new versions come along every so many years because we have new archaeological discoveries and better understandings of ancient texts and things like that. And so when you see version at the end, it's referring to uh, a new version, a new type of, of revisitation to the scripture. And it's, uh, it's not quite the same when we're talking about a translation. So when you read... Um, for example, the message translation by Eugene Peterson, or you read uh, the New Living Translation by, uh, I don't even remember who that is, but whenever you see the word translation, what we're talking about then is someone who's taken an existing text and has changed the wording to make it more uh, contemporary, for example, like Eugene Peterson's version is written in a very common language, and it's meant to make the Bible more real for uh, people in certain ways. There are great benefits to doing that, but my recommendation is that you not use a translation exclusively. I would recommend that you pick a version that you like and a good translation, and they use them, uh, you use them side by side, because together they'll help you quite a bit. The reason the version is helpful for people who really want to study the Bible is because they're generally uh, chock full of all kinds of reference points and things like that that make it easier for you to do an effective study of the Scripture. Now, this podcast doesn't seek to make uh, any kind of scholarship happened like uh, maybe what I would have experienced in seminary. More, it is a Bible study for working people who uh, practice uh, their faith in the world that they live in and they visit church as often as possible and participate in the church as much as possible. This is the Bible study for you. And that means that we're not going to try to turn you into superior Bible scholars. More 
importantly, we're going to help you in your knowing God with your heart and mind. So let's move on then to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4a. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4a. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now let's read Psalm 121. It's a song of ascents. Now what it means is to ascend, and the idea is that this is the song they would sing as they were ascending the Temple Mount to go and worship the Lord. Say, what kind of songs do you sing in your car on the way to church on Sunday morning? What? You don't sing songs on your way to church on Sunday morning? Oh, man, we've got to work on that. If we're really going to church to worship God, and worship is a word that kind of means to celebrate God's worth. You know, you worship that which is worthy of your praise and your thanksgiving and your celebration. And so certainly God is worthy of our praise and celebration and thanksgiving. So when the people were on their way to the temple to worship, they sang songs of ascent. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. Let us pray. Gracious God, Lord, we come as did Nicodemus with questions on our hearts and in our lives. We come hoping someone can help us find answers and healing. But we are also hardened with doubts about self, others, and even you. Grant us healing and openness to your spirit that we may be better servants of your word, your will, and your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the theme on this second Sunday in Lent is definitely about faith. It'll become even more clear as we move into the New Testament readings that we are about to take on. But for now, let's just look at Abraham and that song of ascents. <clears throat> Abraham was 75 years old. Now, as a Bible scholar, of course, we want to think in terms of 
of uh, a few technicalities, I guess is what I want to say, is that, you know, 75 may not have meant the same thing in Abraham's day that it means now, but it's a cinch that this was not a youngster. You know, uh, if people live to be a couple hundred years old or even more in some cases, then maybe 75 is still a pretty spry age. But the fact is, is that the Bible does tell us that uh, it was at least beyond the time when having a child was uh, something that people thought about. So 75 at least means about the same thing to those people then in that regard. So in this case, we see a guy who has grown up with his family in his own hometown, in his own neck of the woods, who is called by God. And the faith of Abraham, and, and you know, actually at this point in our scripture reading, he's still being called Abram, so bear with me here. I, I'm calling him Abraham out of habit. I'll bet you do the same thing. But Abram is, is, uh, is somebody that God has uh, chosen to sort of begin this whole journey with a people called Israel and now a people called his children through Christ. And this is a, um, a remarkable experience to, to behold. You know, this, this Abram is a fellow who is, is uh, unique in some way, and yet if we really put the uh, impetus on God, one of the things we have to acknowledge is that it wasn't anything special about Abraham other than the fact that there was faith. Because from the very beginning of the story of God and Israel, and by the way, I said, you know, it was about this relationship with God and Israel, and now this relationship with God and the children of God through Christ. Um, God still has a relationship with Israel. I didn't want to make it sound like that ended somehow. It's just that God has a kind of relationship with Israel that is not experienced by those who are in a relationship with God through Christ. Um, I'll let it go at that for now. We can talk about that more on another occasion. But uh, by all means, pray for your Jewish brothers and sisters. Pray for Israel. Support them because the Bible tells us to do so and because we have far more in common with those folks than we realize. And it's time we started trying to realize that because we need each other, especially in these desperate times. Anyway, where, where was I, right? There he goes off on a tangent. So here's a, uh, uh, here's a guy who's 75 years old. He's uh, living in his own neck of the woods in his own neighborhood. Life goes on. Everything's fine. Dad's having fine time with his business, his brothers and sisters, all those other folks. Everybody's doing great. And for some reason, there's something different about Abram. And it isn't something that God necessarily, uh, uh, you know, was looking for in Abram, but it was something in Abram that came out. Now, I don't know how much sense that just made, but what I'm driving at here is the first thing we have to understand about God in this story of Abram is the same thing that goes on even now in our story of God and us and our relationship. And that is that God acts first. God is the initiator of the activity. God is the one who starts the ball rolling. God reaches out with this prevenient grace, this grace 
to uh, seek you even when you're not seeking God. God is moving toward you, and it's as though God is always walking right behind you and patiently waiting for you to stop and turn around and notice that God is there. What separates Abram from all the other people down there where he used to live is he noticed that God was in pursuit. Sometimes I like to describe it this way. Abraham answered the phone. Um, This is not something that people in current generations are going to understand as clearly as some of us older folks. But, you know, there was a day when payphones were ubiquitous. Everywhere you drove, everywhere you went, there were pay telephones, telephone booths, banks of telephones on walls in places like train stations and airports. And every now and again, one of those phones would be ringing. And in a busy place like an airport, let's say, thousands of people might walk by this phone that's ringing in this bank of pay telephones. And no one would pay any attention to it. And then for some reason, one person, for whatever reason, just says, I'll pick it up and see who's there. And they answer the phone. You know, it's a gag the old radio announcers used to use back when I was a young person. They would call a phone, a Grand Central Station, and they would just wait and wait and wait until someone answered it. And then they'd get that person on the line and they'd talk to him on the radio and everything else. And then they'd send him a prize just for being willing to answer the phone. And that's kind of what I think Abraham did, uh, Abram. I think he, he was the guy who was willing to answer the phone when everybody else was walking by. And so what is it about Abram that makes him special? Faith. A faith that at its most infantile level at least hearkens to God's call. The phone rang and Abram picked it up. The prevenient grace of God was walking closely behind Abram and he stopped to investigate. This is what makes Abram different. And what's really amazing about Abram is that we find later in his life when his prayers have been answered, when he has entered into the land far from home in hope and trust in God, he's been victorious over dangerous enemies, he's built his wealth, he's developed all kinds of prestige of his own, God has favored him and blessed him in so many ways, and then their prayer that they had always prayed, their hope that they had above all others was that they might have a child of their own, they being Abram and his wife Sarai. By now, they are blessed with a child, and their names are Abraham and Sarah. But at this point, there has become such a bond between Abram and God. There's such a trust between Abram and God. A trust that not even Sarah had, because when God made promises that were too big for her to handle, she chuckled. But not Abram. Not Abraham. He trusted God. He had a faith that was extraordinary. And his faith was credited to him in that God blessed him for trusting him. And when Abram's faith was put to the ultimate test, when Abram was asked to sacrifice this one and only son that they had waited so long to have, this son they named Isaac, which means laughter, because of the laughter that he caused, the joy that he caused with his birth. And there was this moment when 
Abram, Abraham was going to do the unthinkable. He was going to sacrifice his own son. But he believed that if God asked this of him, that God would credit it to him in whatever way God saw fit. This was extraordinary faith. This was a, a, a faith in resurrection. It was a faith in God's uh, ultimate goodness and grace. This was faith. And of course, it was Abraham's faith that saved Isaac's life. And one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible reveals an image of what God the Father would do someday for all of us. He would sacrifice his son. His son would be a substitute so that we didn't have to sacrifice our sons or suffer in our own just punishment for our sin. Instead, like the ram caught in the thicket, Jesus took the place of the human. And therefore, Jesus, both God and human, was the ultimate sacrifice that settled the account with God once and for all. The one who covers our sin, hides our iniquity from God's sight so that God can be with us and we with God. And it was faith that made that possible. But the thing we put our faith in was the ultimate cause. We put our faith in God's just love, in God's grace and willingness to provide a substitute. We put our faith in Christ as the perfect substitute our Savior. And in that, we experience the redemption that we can neither earn nor cause in our own power. And it is our faith in that that saves us. No wonder then the people sang on their way to church. No wonder they sang on their way to the synagogue because for them, it was a celebration of God's incredible love. And sure, those people in the Psalms, they didn't even know they were singing about God's ultimate plan of deliverance. But we do. So what are you singing on the way to church? I'll ask you again. I hope you're singing God's praise on your way to church. reading from the epistles, that is the letters, comes from Romans chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 5 and then verses 13 to 17. This is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, starting at verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this manner? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promises that 
he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promises is promises worthless. Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And now from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell when it comes from, uh, where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever come, uh, excuse me, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And may God add blessing to the hearing of his word. Thanks be to God. Now for the pastoral pontification part of our podcast. That's my tongue-in-cheek way to say that uh, I'm going to say what I think and I'm going to hope that 
it meets with God's approval and blesses your spirit. So, what do we do with these last two readings? Both are so rich and overflowing with flavor and substance, and it's going to be a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around it all, but let's see what we can do. You know, first we look at that reading from the Apostle Paul, and at first it's pretty easy to follow. It doesn't seem that hard to track with, because he's just saying, you know, Abraham was a good guy, and he met with God's approval, and his faith was credited to him, and we all are tracking with God, uh, excuse me, with with uh, the Apostle Paul up to that point. But then he gets into this really circular-sounding thing where he's trying to say that uh, you've got this tension between the law and you've got the, the righteousness and you've got God's grace and the law and the righteousness and the grace. And it gets very confusing and downright frustrating to read that when, in fact, Paul's logic is irrefutable. It's brilliant. Let's take another crack at it, this time from the message translation. Remember when I told you earlier in the podcast that it would be wise to have both a really good version of the Bible for your study and a good translation for your study? Here's a good case in point. Now we're switching to the message translation by Eugene Peterson. Let's read the verses 13 to 17 of Romans chapter 4 again, this time from the message. That famous promise God gave Abraham that he and his children would possess the earth was not given because of something Abraham did or would do. It was based on God's decision to put everything together for him, which Abraham then entered when he believed. If those who get what God gives them only get it by doing everything they are told to do and filling out all the right forms properly signed that eliminates personal trust completely and turns the promise into an ironclad contract. That's not a holy promise. That's a business deal. A contract drawn up by a hard-nosed lawyer and with plenty of fine print only makes sure that you will never be able to collect. But if there is no contract in the first place, simply a promise, and God's promise at that, you can't break it. This is why the fulfillment of God's promise depends entirely on trusting God and His way and then simply embracing him and what he does. God's promise arrives as a pure gift. That's the only way everyone can be sure to get in on it, those who keep the religious traditions and those who have never heard of them. For Abraham is father of us all. He is not our racial father. That's reading the story backwards. He is our faith father. We call Abraham father, not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Isn't that what we've always read in scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as a father of many peoples. Abraham was first named father and then became a father because he dared to trust God 
to do what only God could do, raise the dead to life with a word, make something out of nothing. Now, when you hear Peterson's translation, does that make more sense? I think it does. I think it makes so much sense that I'm not going to try to reiterate what it says. Just think about those words for a moment. And then as you go forward to our reading from the uh, Gospel of John, and we find ourselves looking at Jesus and his interaction with Nicodemus, there's a similar pattern in that. And there's something else for us to know. First of all, we see Jesus explaining to Nicodemus, who is a keeper of the law. He's one of the Pharisees, one of the people who's charged with not only the religious authority over the people, but a certain extent of civil authority over the people. Even while the Romans were in charge, there was a lot of authority exercised by the religious leaders and based in the religious law. And so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, is look, you really can't do this in your flesh. You can't really be born again in your flesh. You have to be born again in your spirit. And it is at that point that you're ready to receive everything that God has for you. And that kind of tracks with what Paul was saying in the letter to the Romans about Abraham. He was saying it wasn't all that Abraham did in his flesh that brought about the salvation and the blessing that God gave him. It was his spirit that brought it about. It was his changed nature. When he trusted God, Abraham left his old life behind and went into a new direction, entirely trusting God, taking God at God's word, and then in so doing, he was being remade by God. So much so that even when he was being challenged to sacrifice his one and only child, Abraham was willing to do it because his faith had grown so much. And of course, God didn't let him down. Now, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, it's like that, you see. You must be born again. Nicodemus can't wrap his mind around that. He's taking everything Jesus says in a literal way and, and trying to apply it through his completely secular interpretation of biblical truth. And so Jesus is throwing him something really challenging. In fact, I'm going to throw it to you now. What I hear Jesus saying in this passage in John chapter 3, starting with the very first verses, is, I tell you that no one can come to the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What about you? Are you born again? Jesus explained it this way. He said, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus will say that you must be born of water and the Spirit. And before we get too wrapped up in what that means about baptism traditions in your local church, let's just stop and think about it in a more basic way. Who, when they are born, doesn't come from the waters of the womb? Because that's pretty much how us mammals are born, you know. We come from the waters of the womb, you know. When uh, a woman is about to give birth... One thing that will almost 
always happen with quite a bit of fanfare is the rushing of the waters of the womb. And therefore, that signals the birth of the new living person. And so when Jesus says that you must be born of water and the Spirit, he's first saying, first you got to be born. First you have to become a human being. And then, in order to really come into your own as a person of God's kingdom, you have to be born again. It's sort of Jesus in reverse that he's describing. After all, Jesus was a spiritual being that was one with the Father and the Holy Spirit in that wonderful, beautiful Godhead of the Trinity, and he became flesh, being born of water. And so, in, re in, in a reverse sort of twist, Jesus is born of Spirit and the water. And then he comes to us and says, you've got to be born of the water and the Spirit. And isn't it amazing that Nicodemus is having trouble wrapping his mind around this. You know, I think we are often way too hard on the Pharisees, and so I just want to point out that this conversation is a very good example of what Jesus seems to have thought of the Pharisees. You know, there are people in the Bible Jesus doesn't give the time of day. There are people that he says don't have enough faith to experience miracles. There are people who question him and accuse him that don't get an answer from him. But many times the Pharisees do. And it's a hard thing for them, but it's said in love. You know, one of the hardest things about loving people is when your love has to be stern and it has to cause people to suffer a little bit of pain in order to recognize something that must change in order to have the best possible well-being, whether it be in body or mind or soul. And uh, love will be that way from time to time. And so there's Jesus saying to Nicodemus, saying to all of us, be born again. Have your spirit renewed and transformed. Have your thought renewed and transformed. And when he says that you must be born of the spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying that you must be open to the spirit in your life, that the Holy Spirit works through those who trust in God, who trust that God has redeemed them through Jesus Christ, who trust that Jesus has given us the gift of the Spirit so that we are at one with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son and in union with all the peoples who call themselves the saints of God, those who are brothers and sisters with Christ through the redemption and the Spirit. Those of us who are the Christians of the world, we are filled with the Spirit and we are a family of the Spirit. That, that's what this is really getting to. And that's powerful stuff. That's powerful stuff. Do you look to the people with whom you worship, with whom you pray, with whom you study Scripture and see family? You know, a lot of churches feel good about being like a family in that they care for one another and they break bread together regularly. But when you are really seeing them as sons and daughters of God like yourself, how does that change the way you are with them? When you realize that the Spirit speaks through them as much as it speaks through us, is that not something worth 
taking into consideration. That's what Jesus demonstrates with Nicodemus, thoughtful conversation, a willingness to provide authority for Nicodemus, but patience with Nicodemus. I like thinking maybe Nicodemus came around someday, that sometime in his life he became a follower of Christ. And it would have been a hard road for him, but worth it. What about you? Are you a follower of Christ? Have you given your life to his saving grace, saying, I can't save myself, but you can save me. I can't make myself right in God's eyes, but you can make me right in God's eyes. Have you prayed that prayer? And have you asked God then to give you new life in the Holy Spirit so that you could be truly living as a son or daughter of God? a member of this holy family called Christianity, called Jesus' followers, you know? I hope so. I do hope so. Well, this has been fun. I sure love studying scripture with you, and I hope you've been blessed by this offering. Uh, my prayer is that God has given you greater insight and the Spirit has enlivened your journey through this. Knowing God with heart and mind is something that I do out of my passion for the Bible and my love for you as it has been expressed through me by the Spirit of God. And you need to know that this podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of the people of Corinth United Methodist Church. The Corinth United Methodist Church is my uh, parish wherein I serve as their pastor and it is their support for my pastoral ministry and the various other ministries of Corinth United Methodist Church that makes all of the things we do to reach the seekers and the sojourners and those who are in desperate need. Corinth is a place where friends become family and the family becomes the body of Christ. And we'd love to have you join us in worship and any of our other activities. To learn more about what happens at Corinth United Methodist Church, you can visit our website at CorinthUMC.com. CorinthUMC.com. You can also worship God there with an offering. Please consider using our PayPal link at CorinthUMC.com to support this ministry and many others provided through the people of Corinth Church. That's all for now, and until next time, God bless you and go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Mm-hmm.